Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert Podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. I'm Kaylee Fritz. I'm Zach Edwards. And I'm Dave Rome. Dave is, as usual, in Australia. Back in Sydney. How's the how's the fires there, Dave? Uh they're okay. We're uh we're about three months into the the smog and smoke, but uh yeah, I think they're uh, slowly getting a little better. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm running out of bush to burn, unfortunately. I flew out through there, or yeah, I flew back home through there after TDU, and uh, I did notice that it was an incredibly thick layer of haze coming down into Sydney. And then when I was walking off the plane onto the jet bridge, it smelled like a campfire. Ooh. Mm. Gross. Yeah, at this point we're uh, we're getting used to it, but uh, yeah, not great times for people in the country. Mm. Sorry to hear that. Well. We are. We do have a number of very nerdy things to talk about today, James. Uh, we're going to do a little bike selector later. We're going to hear about Jakob's needs from we're, Sweden. We're going to kick off the Ask a Mechanic series. We're going to start the Ask a Mechanic series. We've got a mechanic here. We're going to yeah. ask him questions. And where are we going to start today? Well, we're going to actually kind of backpedal a little bit and kind of go back to the last time we were here at Boulder Group Pedo recording the Nerd Alert podcast because one of the things that we talked about there was how... Shimano is rumored to be working primarily on quote unquote perfecting road disc brakes for the next generation of Durace. Um, now, I think it's safe to say that current top end road disc brakes are already really, really good, but they're not perfect. Um, so I was kind of curious what would actually be involved with making brakes better. So I figured I would ask an engineer who knew about it. So uh, I went ahead and called John Thomas, who is the chief engineer for brakes at Hayes Performance System, who has been doing hydraulic bicycle disc brakes for almost longer than anybody at this point. So let's, I think we should hear from John. John, I'm going to preface all of this by first saying that I'm, I'm admittedly a fan of disc brakes on bikes in general. I mean, I've used them on mountain bikes for you know, the past 20 years or so. Okay, um, yeah. I was a pretty early adopter of them on the road and in cross, um, basically just because I think they work better than rim brakes, and I think you'll agree with me there. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, that all said, I also have to acknowledge the perspective of rim brake advocates, at least on the road anyway, who, who point out a bunch of legitimate issues with current disc brake technology. You know, that they can be noisy, that they can rub, that they're heavy, that they're, you know, they're harder to set up and maintain relative to a, a cable actuated uh, rim brake caliber. Um, so I wanted to pick your brain on, on all this stuff and kind of like why we're in this state that we're in right now and kind of where things are going. Um, so I want to tackle the noise thing first, because I feel like that is what people complain about the most, at least for disc brakes on the road. Um you know, most of these complaints are from when the brakes are wet, you know, kind of like that characteristic kind of howl that you get when, when, when the rotors are wet. Um, where is that coming from? What, why, why do we have that? Okay. Right. Yeah. Brake noise in general is a, is a big meaty topic and it's, it's the, probably the most difficult, uh, aspect of developing a brake system is noise, especially on bicycles. Um, and the, the reason for that, you know, I, I, I worked on, uh, brakes at at Honda for nine years before I moved to the bike industry, and uh, when you're doing when you're designing a brake for a very specific vehicle, you, know, you can run through a, a gamut of noise tests, noise matrix we would call it, and choose you know find where the where certain noises would occur frequently and where and where they're loud enough to be objectionable, and then you could attack those noises for that specific vehicle. So for that vehicle, you could 
didn't make modifications to mass or or add chamfers or add add shims that have specific frequencies that get dampened and so forth and you can do that for that specific vehicle well in in bicycle you're designing a brake that can go on a multitude of different frames wheels you know the entire chassis and what tire and so forth so the entire chassis changes from bike to bike and so what what will be noisy on one bike may not be noisy on the next bike and so you can't attack one specific noise because it's not occurring on this bike and it's occurring on another so that's one of the big difficulties in bicycle but uh, to get to your question of what causes noise there's a, there's a couple things that cause noise but the one that really contributes to wet noise is what we call stick slip so any friction is higher when it when something is stationary we call it static friction and then when it's moving we call it dynamic friction and that's usually a lower friction than the static friction so when the pad when the pad the rotors are moving by the pad and the pad has a little bit of of clearance so that way it can move in and out because if it was wedged in there it wouldn't be able to move right so you have to have a little clearance so the pad can move forward and backwards a little bit and what happens is the pad can stick to the rotor and move forward and then and then when it releases it can move back a little bit and, and it's so we call that stick slip it will stick and then release stick and release and so you're going between static and dynamic friction and when you're doing that you're you're creating a frequency right so so and if that frequency that that occurs at you know is picked up by the bicycle then you get a noise and so so that that's kind of the the main reason you have in wet is because in wet the difference between static and dynamic friction is much higher you get a bigger delta and so you have more amplification interesting so So i guess what you're talking about are are, are resonant frequencies right for Right, and so you get a resonant frequency, and but the 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 amplitude is higher because of that that difference in dynamic and static friction. So, so, so given that, is there anything that we can do, given current technology and what we know about bicycle disc brakes, to to get rid of that? I mean, or is is brake noise in the wet something that we're always going to have to have? Well, there there are some things that can be done, and and you know, with our our current brake system that we have for mountain, uh, we we implemented some countermeasures to reduce the the occurrence of noise, and so on. You have more ve- more bikes, you know, I call them vehicles, but you know, different bikes that that won't experience the noise. So you're you're cutting down the number of them that will that will resonate by changing the number of resonant frequencies that the brake system actually creates. So so. <laughs> To get in a little more detail there, there's the, the pads and the rotors and the spokes and the frame all have their natural resonant frequencies. And there's not just one frequency that something will resonate at. We call them modes, and there's a number of modes. And like on a rotor, for example, you have these modes that are in plane where the rotor kind of changes shape but stays flat. And then you have another mode where it kind of bends in and out of plane. And th- those are kind of the two main modes. But within those, there's all different kinds of shapes. So you have like a hundred different net modes that that frequency that the uh, rotor can resonate in. And so then we go through and we design the rotor to eliminate as much as many matching frequencies between the pad and the rotor as possible, so that so that you can't link those 
with as many of those frequencies. So instead of having a hundred different modes, you have 50, let's say. And so then you have, and then one of those hundred may be the one that that bike would, would sing at. And so instead, if you cut those, the number of modes that, you know, that you even create, you may not match the bike. And so that, that's one of the things you can do. Um, if, if a bike manufacturer wants to, you know, to go through the development of specific uh, tuning for their bike, then you can go through and modify pad shapes, try to add shims. You can do things with uh, the actual friction material to to improve the the, the noise uh, occurrence, so to reduce the, the number of noises. Well, I realize that you know, from your perspective, when I mean, you're working with mountain bike companies, I realize that you're working with mountain bike companies from from the Hayes point of view, but um, I mean, you're talking about the possibility that companies can, you know, can look at specific cases for their particular product to minimize those, the, those vibration modes. But yes. does, does anyone actually do that? Uh, it, it's, it's not common, but we, we, we have done that in the past with a, with one of the bigger brands where, uh, really it was the, the, the caliper mount was, was weak and the, the seat stay would sing at a, at a same frequency, you know, that the, the brake was creating. And, and in, in that case, it was just a slight stiffening of the seat stay uh, got rid of the noise. So on the road, um, you know, when, when people are complaining that their, their brakes are noisy and they sing when, when they're wet, um, I mean, at that point, the development work is done. I mean, the work between the brake manufacturer and the bike manufacturer, that's all in the past. Um, so, I mean, all the stuff that you're talking about is, it, it isn't something that is kind of on the list of things that you can do. Um, so from that perspective, once everything's all said and done, can that end user do anything? I mean, are there any, are, are there any, are, are there any, I guess, mechanisms that are available to the end user that they can employ to try and minimize some of that singing? <laughs> the, the main thing that the end user can do is wh- whichever, oh, whichever brand of, of brake you're talking about usually we offer several different options for friction material and so it's certain options are better in the wet than others and so you can you can use different pad compounds to to see if, if that has an impact on you know what you're experiencing again because one one bike may be different than the other um so that, that's probably the biggest thing that you can do other things you can do is uh modifying the mass of the of the of the system so you can if you add something add a little bit of mass you know which we hate to do in road uh that can totally impact it, the frequency that that the whole system is singing at and uh, or the stiffness um you know like the, that seat stay example what we did to show them the difference is we put a little bit of expanding foam inside the seat stay you know like you get for sealing up gaps at your house and that totally made it go away. You know, I'm not saying that's going to be a magic cure for <laughs> for most cases, but um, you can, when you're experiencing the noise, you can, you you have the potential of of touching different parts of the of the bike and seeing if that if that part of the bike is is creating the noise uh, or is the one that's resonating, and then see if you can change that out. You know, you you can talk about the the wheel itself you know, can, can be the thing that's singing, the spokes of the wheel can be singing. And so you, a different wheel may, may, uh, reduce the noise. Got but, it. Okay. But typically that the wheel one is typically what, what we call, or the industry kind of calls turkey gobble. And you get a whole bunch of like 
different frequencies at the end of a of a braking event, and that that turkey gobble is typically the bike spokes because there's so many different. Tw- uh, tensions in the spokes as you go around. Not every spoke is the exact same tension, and so they all sing at different frequencies, and that's what gives you that turkey gobble. <laughs> oh, good to know. How important is proper bed end? It's very important to get in the correct performance. That you know the design and performance because uh, without bed end, your 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 friction level is much lower, and you're putting a lot more force into the brake to get the same braking power, right? And so then the clamp force of the caliper is totally different. You know, it's much higher than it should be. And so then the stiffness of that system is different. It's going to resonate at a different frequency. Um, and, and I guess just to clarify, I mean, what exactly is physically happening when you bed in a rotor? When you bed in a rotor, and this is something that uh, a lot of people don't realize, is that you are actually transferring friction material from the pad to the rotor. You're, you're putting a layer of friction material on the rotor. It's not something you can just see by looking at it, but if you're under a microscope, you'll be able to see it. And, and if you do a chemical analysis, you'll see that that, that friction material is there. And so the friction ends up depositing a, a very, very tiny layer of friction on the rotor. And then that way the friction is rubbing kind of against itself. And that's that's where the friction really starts to jump up is when that friction has been deposited on the rotor. And that's also a reason that if you're switching between different pad materials – different pad compounds, you want to change the rotor as well because otherwise you're getting a mix of two different friction materials on that rotor face, and that's not what that particular friction material was intended to be on, right? So if you're going from a centered to a semi-metallic friction, then you should be putting on a new rotor at the same time and keep that rotor with that pad set if you're switching back and forth. Now, can you can you clean that friction material off the rotor somehow? Uh, not easily. Not, not in a way that you'd want to do because you'd, you'd have to be basically removing a layer of, of material off the rotor. And then your your flatness is probably going to be bad or your disc thickness variation is going to be no good. Okay. So I guess maybe if someone is, uh, you know, of the sort of person who, you know, swaps pad compound for different situations, then maybe it might be a good idea to actually just physically label their rotors with what pads they're matched up to. For sure. Yes. Cool. Okay. Um, speaking about rub uh i mean that is one of the things i guess that's another thing that that uh especially on the road uh people who run disc brakes complain about is is pad rub um so i mean i i actually i, I asked this question long ago because I, I i wondered the same thing but i think it's not entirely intuitive to people who aren't familiar with disc brakes um i guess how the whole thing like how, how the pistons actually work down there um can you explain you know, kind of why we are limited to the fairly minimal amount of rotor clearances that we have right now. So the the common method for for creating that clearance in the first place, you know, it if you're going back to like a mechanical caliper, that clearance is set just by how far back the thing springs apart, right? And uh, with a with a hydraulic caliper, it's very different. What happens in a hydraulic caliper, which which is also an advantage that as the pad wears that you keep the same clearance but what's happening is the piston is sliding past the seal we call it a square seal that's inside the caliper there's a little seal at the very edge of the caliper that's sealing the piston to keep the fluid inside but that the geometry of the caliper has a little uh it's a we call it a chamfer it's a leading chamfer on the on that there's a 
what's the best way to explain this? Up, up inside the caliper, we call it a gland. There's a groove inside there that this, that that seal sits in, that square seal. And that groove has a little chamfer on the front end pointing towards the rotor. And so the seal's sitting in there, and it's squeezed between the caliper and the piston. Okay, And then as the piston pushes out, that seal deflects into that into that leading chamfer. And so it's still stuck to the piston and stuck to the caliper, but it's just bent. You can kind of think of it as being bent. And so then when you let go of the brake, the seal wants to go back to straight, so it pulls the piston back, if that makes sense. So that that's how you're getting your clearance. Okay, And then as the pads wear, the seal can only bend so far, and then the piston starts to slide past the seal as your pads wear, bends back, and you still keep that same clearance. So that's that's kind of how how that uh, how the clearance is is made or is created in a hydraulic caliper, and how the pads can or the pistons can move out with pad wear. But uh, that deflection that's available for the seal is is limited. You can only get so much. Um, there are ways of increasing that deflection, but those ways add mass. Okay, because you you'd have to have a much taller seal that would have the ability to deflect further. But then that makes the whole caliper larger um and you can also go to completely different methods to retract the pistons and keep clearance but those methods involve springs and such and and those are much more heavy and just not something that's desirable on a bike is the mass the trade-off of that mass is just not good so so you're working within this this uh, clearance that that the that the square seals can create so that that that's where you're at and you're limited by that available movement that you have there but there's also another thing that that you have to contend with and this is this is kind of a, a longer thing but we're talking about the the entire brake system has a, a ratio right you're 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 trying to create enough enough mechanical advantage so that with a lower force on your hand, you can you can stop the bike, right? This bigger mass, your rider, and everything. So you need this big mechanical advantage. Well, you can think of mechanical advantage for this whole thing like a like a big lever. And so if you want to, you know, like like you learn in physics, you got you have the lever and you move the fulcrum further to one side, and you only need a little bit of mat, a little bit of weight on one side to move a bigger weight on the other side of the lever, right? So that's the same thing kind of conceptually as a, as a bicycle brake, you have a little mechanical advantage and a hydraulic advantage, but overall you have this big mechanical, this big advantage, this big ratio. And the limitation you have is that, you know, your the actual interface, the finger, your finger can only reach so far. So the lever can only be so far from the grip in, in a, in a, either case, right? Or in the, in the road bike case, it's your, your hand, your fingers on your entire hand, right? And how far they are from, from the handlebar. So you only have then a, a, a certain stroke that's available before the lever would hit the handlebar. So within that stroke, you have to make it, you have to generate all this power. Well, the more, the higher ratio system you have, the more stroke you're going to have. So you think back to that, that lever example from, from physics, from your physics textbook. If you move the fulcrum closer to one side to make higher power, you also need a lot of stroke on on the the low mat, the low force side to create a little bit of stroke but a lot of power on the other side so 
we're limited there as well. So you only have a certain amount of stroke, so you want to get as much power as you can. Well, if you have a bigger clearance, you have to move that whole piston on the caliper side further, which is absorbing a lot of stroke because of that mechanical advantage. So you don't so you have to balance that need for pad clearance with that need for power. So you could you could also design bigger clearance but at the disadvantage of you have to reduce the power of the system. Right. And, and I guess I should clarify that um, like when you're talking about this, this, this seal rollback uh, phenomenon that we're talking about, um, yeah. I guess we should also clarify that that is specific to, I guess, open hydraulic systems, which are what are commonly used in, in the bike industry. Right. Um, I have used some closed systems before. I mean, the, I mean, I know there's at least one uh, German company that I can't I can't recall the name of right now, um, but I know there's at least one company that makes a closed system. And you know, way back in the day, <clears throat> right. way back in the day, I had you know Maguras that were closed system and and that sort of thing. Now, you know, with that sort of design, you are able to get a, a much more mechanical piston retraction. Um, but why? Can you explain from an engineering perspective why that sort of thing isn't necessarily desirable on a bike? Yeah, the the, the disadvantage of a clo- we call that a closed brake system. The disadvantage of a, your your fluid is is a set uh, volume in that case, and what happens is as fluid gets hotter, fluid expands. Okay, and so then you end up with that that clearance reducing until you eventually have a pad drag because this, this fluid is getting bigger and has nowhere to go, so it pushes the caliper piston out. That's what happens in a closed system. So your stroke changes with temperature, with fluid temperature. So as your brakes get hot, your stroke's getting shorter and shorter. And so in an open system, when your brake lever is released, you have a reservoir. So as the fluid expands, it can, that expanded fluid moves into the reservoir. And so you have a, you have a consistent brake stroke uh, regardless of the temperature of the fluid so that that's the big disadvantage of the of a closed brake system and it can be dangerous if you start if you get the fluid expansion to where now that the brake is dragging well the brake dragging creates even more heat and it gets a harder and harder drag and it locks up on you so there so the, the user would have to be very aware of what's going on and adjust usually those closed systems have like an adjuster screw to to move the master cylinder piston back to create space for more fluid and you'd have to be constantly adjusting that so that that's the downfall of the closed system right and the pads also don't self adjust correct um, so for for the rubbing and given the limitations that we have right now and it, they sound like pretty inherent limitations um just based on the desirables for you know lever stroke, lever feel, and power, and that sort of thing. Um, do you guys have any recommendations or tips on what people can do to prevent rubbing? Yeah, there's there's several things. Uh, one is the you get rubbing in kind of two modes. One is when the rotor is not true. If the rotor it is at, you know has a we call it run out, but it it's bent in plane okay so you, you can imagine as it's going through if you look down at the pads and the rotor between the pads and you spun your wheel you'd see the rotor moving from one side to the other and when you when you have that that condition then you get rubbing that's you know you'll get it like once per revolution or twice per revolution you'll just hear that rub that sh- 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 going on and that's that's when the rotor is not nice and straight and so different rotors are better at staying straight or truer than other rotors. And so it may be the case that you need to get a, a better rotor. 
typically the the lightweight rotors are not as good at staying true as the heavier rotors are. So if you're if you you, you tend to see uh, and I think uh, this happens in in cross country and mountain bike where where uh, there's these aftermarket rotors that are very thin and have a huge cutouts and so forth. But they're but that's the problem with those. What well, one of the problems with those is that they don't stay true. And so you can look at the rotor. And you can also try to straighten the rotor. There's there's tools for that that you can you can try to bend the rotor where it's out of out of plane and get it back straight. Okay, so that's one thing that the that the rider can do to improve that. The second thing is uh, caliper pistons. You know, like we we're talking about how they they stick to the seal until a certain point and then they can slip. Well, that interface can change if it if it caliper sits for a long time you can get where the caliper piston sticks it gets more <laughs> i don't know a good word for it but it's 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 ad- almost adhered to the to the square seal so the piston has to travel much further before it slides and you'll get you'll get longer and longer retraction but then once it slides then it goes back to its sh- to its short retraction and so what you may have set up thinking it was good may have been that the piston was stuck to the to the uh square seal and and so now that once it's moved now it's back to its natural state and and so that that side of the caliper now has a smaller clearance than you first set up so you may have to reset up that caliper to center it correctly and so one thing i i recommend doing when you're installing a brake system for the first time is pumping out each piston a little bit so that it's it's moved past the seal and then you can push the pistons back in and that way it's been lubricated and it will act normally for so when you set it up you set it up correctly the first time and you don't have to reset it up after the piston finally has moved out past that seal cool and what what about um as far as setting up the caliper itself um to make sure that it that it's square on the rotor and and has even clearance on either side i mean do you guys have any tips for that yeah well actually there we we do we make for for mountain and it would it work just as well on the road calipers we actually have a tool that that has two shims on it that you put place between the pad and the rotor and that when you're setting up and that way you have like a built-in clearance there to center the rotor right over the caliper center the caliper right over the rotor and then you can tighten down your caliper and pull out those two shims and so that we call that a feeler gauge um so that that tool is very useful you can also use a couple of uh, like uh, business cards that you know something that's that's a very thin that you can put between the rotor and the pad on each side when you're setting up, and that that can be useful. Um, the the other thing, but it, it's only exclusive to ours is we have we have a feature on our calipers that have a little a little set screw in the feet of the calipers that allows you to to do a set of procedure that you can move the caliper out axially. It very specific distance by moving those screws and so you can you can go to it, it i you'd have to look on our website for this set of procedure but it's basically you bias it to one side and then you move those screws until it, you have the clearance set that you want but re, for for the uh for the roadside since that's not available i would recommend that tool or using some it's using some uh card stock or something okay in there to set um, it up well now i know that you know when, when people are having a hard time with with pad rub or rotor rub, however you want to talk, uh, however you want to um, characterize it. Um, I know a lot of times. I mean, the instinct on is to typically just blame the brake. You know, like there's something wrong with this brake, so on and so forth. Um, 
But I guess one thing that I, I mean, and I'd be interested to hear your perspective on how common this is. But um, in my experience, I know that a lot of times it's due to the caliper interface on the fork or frame itself not being square. Oh, um, yeah. How, yeah, that's how, common. <laughs> how common is that? I mean, because I, I have a disc tab facing tool and I use it pretty often. And I'm generally pretty amazed at how much material gets removed off the frame and fork. And, and I'm not, not talking square. I'm like how much of, off of one edge would suggest to me that it's not where it's supposed to be. Um, how often is that the case? Oh, we, we see it very frequently that the that the the build the build quality of the frames for as far as that 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 mounting goes is usually it's frequently not good it's it's quite common and especially both both being in the wrong location by having you know either too much material which is what that facing uh, tool would do or if it doesn't have enough t material but also being rounded or being angled relative to the axle you know, because you want it nice and square to the axle, and, and when it's not, then that facing tool can also help that situation. Or the or the, when it's not flat and it's sort of a little rounded, that facing tool helps that as well. And we see all of that, and it's very frequent. So, in effect, what John is saying is that brakes are really good right now, but. To get them even better is going to take a lot of nitty-gritty detail work that may also involve a lot of cooperation with the frames and bike companies that these brakes are going to be going on. Because ultimately, when people have problems with their brakes, I mean, people always blame the brake, but it's not always the brake's fault. It might be the fork or the frame or the rotor or how the rotors were bedded in. It could be a whole bunch of different things. Um, or the wheel. Or it could be the wheel, for sure, and very much could be the fact that the uh, I mean, I think John said maybe even you know as many as half the bikes in you know frames and forks that he sees require the tabs to be faced because they're not square the way they should be, hmm. which is a problem. Yep. Do you do you face uh, brake mounts uh, frequently? Is that something you have to do? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I do a lot of like custom metal bikes that are usually made pretty well, um, but most carbon bikes are pretty garbage. So what is, what's sort of the indicator that you have to do that? You stick the brake on and it's like will not line up properly basically. Yeah. And usually you can even just eyeball it. Like there's all kinds of paint overspray or like half of the brake mount is, has a clear coat on it. And yeah, it's usually pretty obvious. And I guess the issue there is if the mounting interface that the brake caliper is going to be going on, isn't the way it should be, then you basically have no chance of getting that brake to work properly. Yeah. It'll rub on both sides once. I think too. Yeah. There are a lot of, I've seen on quite a few road bikes that are lightweight disc ones where the fork itself is really flexy. So you like mm. have everything lined up and faced perfectly. And then you like get out of the saddle and lean a little bit in the brake rubs. Like if it's not straight, you'll have say the bottom of one side of the pad hitting. And then on the other pad, you'll have the top hitting. Mm. Well, Zach, let me ask you this. There are very likely to be a very small minority of shops that even have a disc brake or disc tab facing tool on hand. Yeah. Um, how would someone figure out what shop to take their bike to? Like, first of all, a shop has to have the tool, but second of all, they also have to know how to use it because that tool is going to be removing material from your frame and fork. And it's not really something that you get to do twice. Yeah. That's, I mean, how do we know like that you know what advertise that? But they're like, we have a disc brake facing tool. Like that's not like a sign out front, right? It should um, be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it shouldn't though. It should be something that the manufacturers do at the factory. Like 
the shop shouldn't have to be doing this. True. Um, Manufacturers should be but, doing a lot of things at the factory well, that they don't yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, obviously. <laughs> That's, yeah. Um, but otherwise, I mean, just pick good, reputable mechanics that generally know what they're doing. I guess I don't know how you would go off of. Uh, we need like Yelp reviews for mechanics. Uh, Yelp is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Are you just saying that because someone didn't like you on Yelp? No, so? just like the whole principle of Yelp. It's just. I went to Boulder Gruppetto and had to use the bathroom, and that thing was gross. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> well, let's let's sort of like pivot here a little yeah. bit and talk about you know we just heard a whole bunch about sort of the difficulties in making a perfect break, but let's assume that all these things have engineering solutions. What, what exactly, what, what are the issues with the current brakes? What, what needs to be solved right now? Wait. There's all kinds of issues before that, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, you, you, I mean, you run into these issues more than anybody else because you are working on, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the bikes hanging in Boulder Gruppetto here, and a lot there's of like breaks. maybe one or two that have rim brakes of a whole wall. Yeah. So... What kind of stuff are you coming across on a regular basis? I would say like, let's just say top three issues, maybe. I would say like around here, heat dissipation is a really big one because um, there are a lot of descents that people drag the brakes down. Um, so a lot of like fully turned black rotors. Um, Shimano does stuff about that. SRAM doesn't really seem to. Um, and then I would say contamination and ease of contamination is definitely an issue. I feel like they need to do something about that to make pads that don't contaminate as easily. Um, I said three. What was the other? Oh, noise. Yeah, noise is contamination. And then the third one, I would say, this like lack of clearance between the pads and the rotors, and like obviously facing the frame helps. But then you say you have two different wheel sets, and they're not the same exact hub and rotor, and it, like you can't just swap wheels. Um, and even when everything is perfect and lined up and brand new, like. I would say nine out of 10 times you put a brand new rotor on a bike and the rotor's not straight. Like, why is that an issue? <laughs> like, <laughs> like a rotor shouldn't come pre-bent. Um, so yeah, I would say those are like the three biggest things that I run into. I mean, a lot of these things sound like they could be solved with just proper manufacturing, proper manufacturing tolerances for things that already exist. Weird. Like, yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> and I guess the problem here is that keep holding things, holding, you know, high end things to tight manufacturing tolerances. I mean, that's what really costs the money. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you start out with a disc tab that's properly faced and you have a frame and a fork that is properly designed to handle that kind of load. So, and you know, something that's not so light and spindly, spindly that it just vibrates like crazy, which is how you get that howling. And then you have, you know, a, a hub rotor interface that is properly machined so that it's flat. Um, because a lot of times when people say that their rotor is warped, it's not actually the rotor that's warped. It's the hub that that rotor is going on that is slightly tiny bit off. And then when you tighten everything down, that's when it looks warped. Um, but then, you know, and then if you have a caliper that is, you know, properly machined and, and if the... <clears throat> And if the pistons are properly lubed and you know they're retracting properly, and like if all of those things are where they should be, I mean that's when you get a good disc brake, right? So theoretically, if you were to guess, how much would it cost to have quality control not suck? Like, is this adding five hundred dollars to the price of a bike? You know, I asked a friend of mine who was in that side of the bike industry. Uh, I asked him that question a, quite a while ago, and I don't remember what the actual answer was, um, but I remember it being a much smaller number than. It would really, it really should have been like, like, like it, an, would, it would have added like less than a hundred dollars per bike. Yeah, and on like a S Works or a whatever, like a Dura Ace or SRAM Red, something like a 
$10,000 bike. People don't care about a couple hundred dollars to have no brake issues. Like that seems really stupid that that's not a thing. Yeah. Well, and then, and then you end up with, you know, someone bought a frame and bought all the parts and yeah. bring them to you for a custom build. And you know, you do absolutely everything you can possibly do to make it work properly. And it doesn't, and they come back and they're like, uh, my brakes are making horrible, horrible noises. And I just spent $14,000 on this bike. Yeah. And it's basically because as we say, sort of manufacturing tolerances are just not there. Yeah. In theory, the engineering is all fine. If we, if we're, if we're to believe Mr. Hayes, yeah. uh, but <laughs> you know these these are solvable pro- solvable problems right i mean it's like the same as anything on a bike though right like quality control comes down to a lot of it whether it's like brakes rubbing or creaky bottom brackets or anything like that like it's usually quality control is just not there and unfortunately the way things the way a lot of things are in the bike industry it's kind of you know it, you're kind of just rolling the dice yeah because you really don't know exactly what you're getting because even if even if what you're getting is within the manufacturer tolerance, I mean, that tolerance is probably wider than you would ideally want for it to be. And you don't know, you know, I guess to use a car analogy, you don't know if you got a Monday car or a Friday car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want a Monday bike. So things Monday are... Monday bikes only, please. Yeah. Tuesday sounds good. Like Monday, they're getting warmed up. <laughs> Tuesday, they're like on it. You want I think, a Tuesday I think morning Wednesday, bike? I think Wednesday was the ideal day, wasn't I think, it? Yeah. I think they should just sell bikes with the day that they were manufactured the on day it. of yeah. manufacture yeah and be like well friday bike 10 percent off sorry <laughs> yeah. well monday morning bike five percent off <laughs> or, or, or kind of like you know like, like the little uh like the little instant feedback little uh little electronic boxes that you see some, sometimes at airport bathrooms where you're like you know how was how was this bathroom today and you have like the little sad face and smiley oh, yeah. face whatever yeah just put a like put like a little one through five i mean some, a lot of front. bikes like, i feel like feel today come out of the box like from whatever factory in asia they'll have some sort of not all the time because it's not supposed to be in there, but it's like a checklist of that they did everything right, and it's none of it's in English, right? But like that exists, but you can't do anything with it. You can't take that to the company and be like, "You checked off this part, but you didn't actually do it properly." Like that, that yeah. doesn't exist. There's no yeah. recourse. All that said, even if you got a Tuesday bike, for me, weight is still an issue stopping disc brakes from being like the no questions asked norm in road cycling. Uh, as a system weight, it's you know there's still a three to four hundred gram weight penalty in a good case scenario by going to disc brakes, and for me that's sort of you know that's why you still see a lot of people holding on to their rim brakes at the moment. What's a tarmac um, with disc brakes weigh like with race wheels and everything? That's uh, the pros would be like seven point one, seven point two. Yeah, that's most plenty of them. light. Um, <laughs> like a good good example is like, like Adam Hans sometimes, but yeah, like that's light. <laughs> But yeah, like a good example is Adam Hansen, like tip, you know, traditional weight weenie, hardcore weight weenie. His helium um, rim brakes was always 6.8 on the nose. And his new one, they've, the team's been asked to ride disc brakes for the new year. Um, same bike, but disc brake at 7.3, 7.4. Yeah, and that's not even aero. So, so yeah, I mean, for me, like, I mean, weight, you know, in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter that much, but it's the one metric that people can actually look at. And it's still the one metric stopping. Right, and everyone from just going okay disc brakes are the future and the problem with reducing weight as far as disc brake disc brake goes is that reducing the weight also introduces the possibility or increases the possibility that they'll vibrate yes correct so and also guarantees the possibility that the price will go up yeah i mean look at the mountain bike side when disc brakes were kind of introducing themselves like 
they were like Magura, for example, had really light brakes. They were sweet because they made your mm-hmm. bike really light, but they sucked. <laughs> like, I like I like my Mater SLs, so. but yeah, you did have to bleed them once or twice. <laughs> yeah, um. Exactly. <laughs> right. I mean, we'll we'll see how things go. You know, moving forward. I mean, b- brakes still are getting better. I mean, one of the things that that we you know, Dave, you noticed at the at TDU, and I kind of looked into this a little bit after I got back, was that um, I mean, companies are still constantly improving their brakes whether or not they talk about it or not and one of the things and one of the things we found is that sram actually replaced their one-piece red hydraulic disc brake calipers with a two-piece caliber uh last june or july i think it was and they didn't really talk about it they didn't even tell anybody they didn't tell anybody it wasn't last june or july the road the roadside of things was really recent like over the winter months yeah Yeah. on the the mountain bike officially it was in july they weren't shipping it though if you ordered a group set on the mountain bike side, on the, the it took level, a while to get rid of the old stuff, though. Right, <laughs> <laughs> on the level brakes, which are the like cross country brake that had the same caliper as the road stuff. Um, it had the one piece, and then like around, like I think it was probably around like time when mountain bike nationals and worlds were happening. There's a new two piece caliper. It's like August. Yeah. 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 But yeah. So I mean, officially they they're claiming that. No. So officially they're claiming that that new caliper takes a larger pad. A uh, larger pad gives, you know, more surface area, so better heat dissipation, more power. Uh, unofficially, I'm hearing that it actually opens up pad clearance a bit, so less rub. The pads, I think, is really funny. Like, it doesn't mean anything about how they're performing or whatever, but they use the same pads as the old Elixir brakes, which don't really <laughs> instill confidence. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Zach's on fire today. Um, and then, and then, yeah. So, and uh, and on that point, like Shimano also did a running change with their brake pads. Um, their resin brake pads didn't, you know, on the road bikes, they weren't they weren't lasting too long. I'm sure Zach can yeah. probably confirm this. Uh, and they recently came out with a, a new generation, which is claimed to be 50 percent more durable. So, um, so you know, the brands are always just sneakily bringing these new things out. This is a, a kind of an interesting development, though. I mean, generally, when a bike brand makes something better. They shout it from the rooftops. Yeah. So what is it about improving brakes that makes them not want to shout it from the rooftops? Is it the <laughs> well, admission that the last ones were bad? Well, because Probably. it's like, you know, if, if someone comes out with something that is, you know, offers some sort of tangible or even just, you know, perceived performance improvement, then that's when they will just tell everyone in the world about it. When they come up with a revision that, basically just corrects something that was wrong or bad about a previous revision that's when they kind of just roll it out quietly and just like that's when you don't really want anybody to know about it but like these are in performance improvements right i mean they're like real tangible performance improvements probably way more noticeable than 85 grams off the new venge frame or whatever the hell yeah. you know that, that they'll scream from the from the mountaintops about yeah but the difference is that instead of it being better than what it was touted to be Originally, it is more something that brings it closer to what it was supposed to be. Yeah. Does that make sense? Because, yeah. like, you know, I mean, just to... So, like, if they, if they release this, like, this is way better than the old one, the consumer, are they going to be like, well, then you you messed up the first one. Are you going to give me the new one that actually functions well, well that, that's for free? Thing, right? I mean, like, and, you know, to, to, I guess, you know, talk about companies equally here, I mean, Shimano... You know, they haven't talked about this at all, but if you look at like mechanic forums on Facebook and that sort of thing, they have had tons of problems with a lot of their hydraulic disc brakes, mainly with fluid kind of seeping past the calipers, especially if the bikes are sitting for a while. Yep. And they haven't talked mm-hmm. about that at all, but they have gone through a ton of caliper revisions. 
Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah, I actually I had to replace a front caliper on Meg's my wife my wife's bike uh, twice because it just kept contaminating just the front just just the front. Yeah, it would just because it was it was fluid seeping through and then hitting the pad and then it would be contaminated. She would literally contaminate the brakes halfway down a descent. Terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> not so good. Yeah. Not so good. Anyway, I think that's enough about brakes. We have ask mechanic and what bike should I buy segments to get to we do and i think we should do i think we should do ask a mechanic first because we have yet to do that on nerd alert and i think we should kick that off in proper fashion let's ask some questions let's do it james you you asked the world twitter specifically for questions that we can ask a mechanic this is our mechanic right here. Indeed, Zach. I did. So, Zach, I don't know how prepared you are for this, but... We didn't prepare not, him at not all. Not prepared at all, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we didn't, we didn't really prime him with, with a, a little cheat sheet or anything. So, uh, some of these may be a little personal. Just, just yeah. be aware. Let's get into it. Prepared. Where do we begin, James? What's the first yeah. question? All right. Let's see. We'll maybe start with some easier ones. Okay. Okay? Get warmed up. So, uh, Twitter user Jeff Werner has a question about traveling with a hydraulic disc brake bike. He's asking about quick link couplers for hydraulic brake lines. He's got a tiny bike box and he's flying to events. I mean, he doesn't want to rebleed his front brake. What Ooh, can he do there? Not fun. Uh, not a whole lot, I'd say. Um, SRAM for a while made, it was more on OEM spec stuff, but they made a hose kit that had an inline quick connection thing. I think it was good for like five or so connections before you had to rebleed it. But that's OEM. I don't actually know if you can buy that aftermarket is that the connect -a jig is that what they called it yeah but you can't just add it into an existing hose because it was on one end was fully crimped into the hose um shimano not so much i'd say if you're traveling a lot maybe put a new hose on there and just leave it extra long so that you don't have that issue but otherwise get a bigger bike box or bleed your brake or get a bike with rim brakes or that yeah mm. rim brake mm. no issues traveling there no mm. real good solution to that one yeah okay Sorry, Jeff. You're stuck. Sorry. <laughs> this one is admittedly, this one's admittedly amb a, little, a little ambiguous. Uh, I asked for clarification, and he declined. Um, the question is, which cables? Which cables? <laughs> which cables? So just to be clear, we did not prep Zach in any way yeah. for these questions. We're just going to get straight, honest answers. So which cables, cables, Zach? Shift cables? Yes. Any of them. <laughs> um, I mean... Here, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make it. I'll make it a little bit easier for you. What is your brake cable of choice? Uh, I mean, I in terms of like best feel, I really like the Shimano, uh, like the Durace coated ones. They just feel really nice. There's like zero friction and they last a long time. But a lot of people don't like them because they have coating that comes off. But if you're careful installing them, then it lasts a long time. Maybe more importantly, what housing do you use with that? For rim brakes, is that what we're talking about? For rim brake. Mm -hmm. Just regular Shimano housing. That's so boring. Yeah. <laughs> How about shift? Uh, you know, like, I think people were super stoked on the gore stuff back in the day. I know people have, like, they've held on to it because they don't oh, yeah. make it anymore. Yeah. Right? They've got, like, stashes hidden away in the I, back corner somewhere. I have a somewhere. massive stash. Yeah, James yeah. is a big stash. Is there anything out there sort of with that, 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 that brings with it that level of dedication anymore? Or is I mean, gore was great because bikes that... You use gore because of like keeping weather and grime and crap out of the cables and housing. Because it had like good little end bits. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It was fully sealed front to back. But now basically any bike that's used off road, 
has full housing anyways, like it should. So it's less of an issue, I would say. So is your answer to which cables any cable? Uh, still like high quality, nice stainless cables, but not you don't need anything fancy. It's very boring. So, yeah, it is very boring. <laughs> but practical. Yeah. Next okay. question, James. Next question. Okay. Um, how do you ensure that a saddle that is mounted on a round seat post is installed square with the frame? This reader is OCD about this and has questions. And well, he has ideas on making a tool with a laser Wait, for so a round, like straight how, in the how frame. How do you basically make it so that the saddle is straight in the frame, pointed straight ahead? I mean, just look at it. <laughs> I, I mean, it's the same with the stem, right? Like, they're tuned. I don't know if they still make it, but they used to make this like hundred dollar laser pointer that went on your stem to make sure your stem was straight. But it's usually like pretty easy to eyeball. And with the saddle, too, like, as soon as you sit on it, you're going to be able to tell whether it's straight or not. <laughs> no, no, this is perfect, because what this is indicating to me so far is that our readers are slightly more um, obsessive than, I, I mean, would, I guess, I would like, say, safe to say, one of the best mechanics well, in the United States. I, mean, I guess so you could, like, if you really want, you could probably, like, so you could put your bike... Like use a level, make it perfectly straight up and down, and then like drop a plumb bob or something from your saddle to your top tube if you wanted to get crazy. But that seems excessive. And still <laughs> probably is not going to be perfect. <laughs> well, I guess what I do is I stand behind the bike and kind of sight down the length of the saddle. Yeah. And then I can kind of see if the, if the, the headset cap is lined up with the nose of the saddle. Yeah. That's what I usually do. But I use lasers. Yeah. No, that's not true. We all know that's not true. I wouldn't even know where to start. No, you wouldn't. What's the yeah. next question, James? Next question. <laughs> household products for bike cleaning. Like dish soap? Or do you use any household bike uh, household products for bike cleaning? As opposed to a dedicated bike cleaning oh, thing. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this in the, what was the chain podcast. Like, for sure, just dish soap and Dawn or whatever your preferred, preferred dish soap brand, I guess, I would say. And then not necessarily bike-specific degreaser. Dawn is the way to go. I've yeah. heard that many, many, many times. That's yeah. what I use at you home. You can find it anywhere. You travel, go to race, can get it at any store ever. Mm -hmm. Or host house. Or it doesn't ruin disc brakes. No. Yep. Dawn. Next question. How do you install a quick link on a chain that does not currently have one? It's a pretty easy one, actually. You just, like, this is an existing chain, not a... This is an existing chain that does not have a quick link on it, and he wants to put a quick put a quick link on it. How do you do that? Just get a chain tool and bust out a link and put a quick link in place of it. Does it matter which link you bust out? Ooh, may have stumped him with that one. I mean, I guess if it's so let's say it's a Shimano chain that has a pin in it. I guess you could argue like take the pin out and replace that so that there's not a a pin in there to fail. Because um, that's the weakest point of the chain. Generally. Yeah, yeah, that's what I would probably say. But if there's no pin, then you just... But if you're putting a master link in your chain anyways, your chain's probably old and probably needs replaced anyways, so just get a new chain that has a master link. <laughs> Zach, I'm getting the sense that you're finding a lot of these questions kind of silly. <laughs> They're all very... Yeah, very good. <laughs> we, might have to, we might have to ask him things like, you know, how do you, how do you face a bottom bracket? Like, like yeah, what happens if I... Don't do that anymore. That, it, that is true. But speaking of bottom brackets, another question. What are your recommended options for converting a press fit bottom bracket to threaded? Like a sort of thread together one, not like tapping a frame to T forty seven or something. Do, but do you have one in particular that you that you like? Uh, I mean, I would say like every, they're all the same pretty much. Most companies, um, it's like one half that threads into the other and kind of sandwiches the frame. Wheels Manufacturing makes one for basically every option. Yeah, like Praxis makes them. Is, is there sort of like a good 
price point to be aiming for. I mean, the, wheel, the like, wheels ones are generally a little bit cheaper than like well, the Praxis ones. Even with ones. the wheels ones, it's the same, basically the same cups, but then you can get different bearing levels in them. Mm. I would say it kind of depends on what how much you want to spend. but Or you could like get a ceramic speed or something that is going to be the other end of the ballpark. Um, next question. T47, is this thing really the savior it is made out to be? And I guess just to... To fill people in on what T47 is, it's a new bottom bracket standard, yet another one. Uh, but this one is touted to be sort of a universal threaded system that will allow for regular diameter spindles and oversize and inboard bearing placement, outboard. You can basically do whatever you want with it. But the key feature about it is that it's threaded. So what, you, what are your thoughts on it? Definitely say it's not the savior. It's been out for, what, three, maybe four years now at this point, And it, no one's really doing it. Um, Trek is doing it. But it's not T47, it's something different. It's T40, yeah, well, it's T47 narrow-ish. Yeah, because it was, what, it was Argonaut and Chris King started it, right? And then basically no other small builders are really using that. Um, They're a handful. a handful, not very many. Not very many. The ones I've talked to, too, it's probably like T47, the whole thing everyone was initially excited about was that you could theoretically thread and retrofit an old press fit frame to use that. The builders that I've talked to basically say, like, say a tie frame, like, have broken the taps to do that inside the frame and essentially ruin the frame. Um, so that's not really, hasn't really happened. Well, clearly it should be easier to tap a carbon frame, right? Yeah, right. right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait. Yeah, definitely right. not. Not a, not a believer then. No, I would <laughs> just regular English thread bottom bracket. Okay, last question for you. We'll see how good mechanic you oh, really yeah. are. Let's see it. Hmm. Okay, this reader has uh, says that they have always been frustrated trying to judge if their headset is loose on bikes with disc brakes. It seems the leverage is different, and they get the impression that it's that they're not sure if the rocking is in the headset or if it's in the brakes. What's your best technique for figuring that out? I mean, yeah, with disc brakes too, especially because you know, the pads kind of wiggle a little bit in the caliper. I would say the easiest way, whether it's rim brake or disc brake, to see if the headset's loose is can you spin the headset spacers? If you can spin the headset spacers, like sometimes you have to grab on them a little bit. But if they spin, then the headset's loose. Hmm. I usually just turn the wheel. Yeah, and, yeah or you can turn the wheel. That way. Yeah, but like, say your hub's loose or your through axle you didn't tighten or whatever. Like, if you just grab the headset. I think basically the conclusion that we're coming to is instead of sending in questions that we ask you on the air, I think we're just going to have people send you their bikes. <laughs> yeah, that works. <laughs> right? And they'll them. pay you to fix them. Yeah. And oh, wait, gonna, you'll run a bike. You can give perfect. out some advice. That's fine. <laughs> hey, there you have it. Yeah. Expert opinion from... Zach Edwards yep. of the Boulder Gruppetto. There you go. Me. Uh, if you want to ask a question of Zach here, tweet at us with the hashtag AskABikeMechanic. That's AskABikeMechanic. And we'll keep an eye out for him, and we will ask Zach for the next podcast. Yeah. As any listener to the Nerd Alert podcast will know, this segment is all about helping our listeners buy a new bike or an old bike. Because chances are you may be in the market for a new bike or used bike, and you might want a little bit of advice as far as which bike you should buy, and we are here to help you. So we have a, we have a form on the internet, cyclingtips.com slash bike selector, I do believe, and you can fill out that form, and it goes to us, specifically to my inbox, unfortunately. I forward it to these guys, and we all decide which bike we think you should buy. So, James, who are we hearing from in this week's What Bike Should I Buy episode? Well, it, it just dawned on me that I should do a better job of picking 
submissions from people whose names I can more easily pronounce. Mm. Um, we got the last one right, though. Well, this one's from Sweden. Mm, it's not going to be right, then. <laughs> right, but I'm going to guess it's Jakob Falsted. Sounds right. All right. Jakob. We'll just go with Jakob. Okay. Yeah. He is looking for a all-road bike. So not a gravel bike, all-road bike. His budget is seven to 8,000 euros. Uh, is not really particularly bu- fussed with big or little brands or frame material. He just wants the best. Hmm. Uh, wants disc brakes. He's mostly going to be riding on tarmac, mostly flat. Uh, he's going to be doing everything from fast-paced, all-out 20K rides to 200K long, relaxed-paced rides. 10 to 20% gravel and dirt, including some gravel sportifs. Uh, he is currently looking at a new Trek Domani, a Rondo HVRT, a BMC Road Machine, and the Orbea Orca OMX. I think we should hear from Dave Rome first. Dave, what, what is your initial impression after hearing what Jakob needs? Where, where do you mm. think we should go first? Well, he also mentioned that he's very interested in a bike that is fast and aero, which to me uh, limits the list a little. Uh, so, you know, his budget would actually allow for something custom and something special, but that aero and fast sort of wants me to... Um, push him towards something carbon. Um, and he's actually got it on his shortlist already, which is the bike, uh, the BMC Road Machine is the one I would probably be pointing him toward because it's, uh, it's the new one's got room for 32C tires, so he can handle a little bit of gravel on that. It's got the aero, it's got the speed, it's got the comfort, and it's, it's one of the better all-round fast race bikes while still having um, a bit of versatility to it. James, do you agree? I actually would go with the Orbea Orca OMX, actually, uh, for a couple of different reasons. I mean, that one can also run tires up to 32C or 32 mils wide. Um, so you can, you can tackle a pretty wide variety of terrain on it. But the big thing for me on that one, I mean, there is still some aero shaping, which is fine. Um, but there's a couple things here. Um, Orbea, I feel like, is kind of a undervalued brand. Uh, I think they make fantastic bikes. I think they're consistently some of the best handling bikes that I've ridden. Um, And one of the things I really like is that you can get custom paint for free, Hmm. which means that not only is it a brand that is just not really that common, um, which is kind of sad because they're great bikes, but you can also get it so that you can kind of pick whatever color you want and you can more or less have a custom bike, but with kind of production levels of, you know, kind of weight and stiffness and aerodynamic qualities, that sort of thing. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good pick. I, th- I think the good news for Jakob is that the bike he's describing is literally any modern disc road bike <laughs> because almost all of them now will take a 30 or a 32 mil tire. I think he does want to get one because he said he's going to be on sort of 10 to 20% gravel and will be doing the occasional gravel event. He probably wants one that'll take at least a 32, if not slightly larger. But really, the, the, the options from that point are... are are almost limitless at this point. I mean, a specialized tarmac will take a 32, uh, a Domani will take a 32, a Madone will take a 32, an Amondo will take a 32, a Scott Addict will take a 32. All, all, basically, all of these big brands will take the right size tire. To an extent. To an extent. Yeah. There are some exceptions. Like uh, you're running a 32 mil tire on a Venge, for example, which which specialized most most definitely does not approve. Yeah, yeah, but you know you don't have they don't, you don't need their approval. You can do whatever you want if it fits. That's how I feel about it, because we are not uh, subject to the same sort of government regulations as a actual bike brand. Yeah, so you have, you have sort of infinite options here. And for 8000 uh, I was actually going to go with the Specialized Venge because if you are going to be spending most of your time on the road, 
it still fits a 32. It's a ridiculously fast, ridiculously fun, very racy bike. But if you want to throw a 32 mil tire on there, you can just go and explore wherever you want. And you can get a sort of mid-level Venge for that sort of 8,000 euro range that you're talking about, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, a mid-level at 8,000 euros. Mid-level. Mid-level is still a, a quite nice build from this particular bike. Zach, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, like Haley said, pretty much any modern disc road bike will fit a big tire i'd say from there like go with what fits so whether it's like obviously avenge is going to be a lot more relaxed geometry or more aggressive than like a domani which is going to be more relaxed so like kind of figure out what you want there and whether you want like super racy or stable or if you want a little bit bigger tires then maybe something more down the gravel side of things but yeah i don't know otherwise so, if i had to pick so, tarmac because yeah. they all look like it yeah, so I was just going to add that if uh, Jakob did want to go with a little bit more versatility, um, then something like the Trek de Mane is probably uh, one well worth considering because I believe that one fits a 38mm tire, which is quite is quite progressive in the way. And I, and I just I wanted to say that road tires aren't exactly getting any narrower. The trend is for wider and wider. Um, and if he does have uh, goals of doing a little bit of gravel, then the Demane or a bike like that that fits even wider than a 32 could be well worth considering as well. And I guess the one thing about the Demane is it is a exceptionally comfortable bike to ride. And the one downside to it is that it is kind of heavy, but if most of his riding is going to be flat, that really isn't going to matter a whole lot. There you have it. So, yeah, Jakob, you got tons and tons of options here. That's the nice thing. An Orbea, maybe a Venge if you want to go a little bit racier. A Domane if you want to go a little bit in the other direction. Lots of options on the table. But why go boring? Go for something different. Then get custom. He wants arrow, though. Oh. Or arrow-ish. See, is the Orbea, is the Orbea particularly arrow? It's supposed I mean, to be. It is like Tarmac-ish. Depends how much arrow you want. That's, I mean, that's, why, that's, that's what, I, what I spotted when I, when I said the Venge is the one because you have this bike that is, as I said, insanely fast. So I would say Madone because then you have the the ISO speed thing for more comfort. Yeah, but you can really only comfortably fit like a 30 on there. That's all you need. <laughs> all bikes are road we, bikes. Yeah, we ride all kinds of stupid stuff with road tires. <laughs> that is true. That is true. There you go, Jakob. Lots of options. For everybody else out there, make sure that you head over to our bike selector, fill out the form, let us know what you want, and perhaps we'll help you figure out which bike is the bike for you in a future episode. Well, I think now that we have solved the world's bike problems... I think we should wrap up this episode of Mr. Jakob's bike problems. Yeah. Hopefully. We, Except we just gave him like, like we just options. confused them more. <laughs> we, mm, yeah. I mean, I was trying to limit it to one and then I, I mean, I maybe we should maybe just cut it off after my recommendation and just call it there. I think that we need to spend more time arguing for our pick. That's what yeah. we need to do. We need to get, we need to, this needs to get heated. I feel like I need to prepare we, myself we more. We can get heated. <laughs> we, we can get heated. I am, I am very to prepared to defend my decision on yeah. that Orbea and I'm going to win. I am less prepared to defend my decision on the bench. <laughs> I feel like that's not a good decision. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jakob, I actually really like I like the Orbea recommendation, and and I do like it because it's something a little bit different, and I like that company, and it is a bike that fits all the things that Jakob wants and needs. See, there you go. I'm winning. James wins. All right, one point for James. What do you have against the BMC? I mean, other other than fact, uh, like snap. So, sorry, Dave. Years, what was that? What do you have against wait, the BMC? You're, you're, there's something wrong with your mic. You're cutting out. What? What? What was that? Uh, yeah, we lost no. Dave. Oh, no. Dave's gone. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Well, we lost Dave. Dave has already decided he is done with Nerd Alert this week. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. So if you liked this week's podcast, give us a rating or ideally hit subscribe. And share it. That's the other thing. Tell your tell your ride buddies about us and, you know, open up iTunes or Spotify or whatever and chuck this thing in your Twitter or your Facebook and let people know that we have the best nerdy podcast of all time. Or at the very least, we have the people who are most willing to talk and hear ourselves talk for yeah. a while. Or like, like top three anyway. Mm. Or podium. Podium. Down on podium. <laughs> <laughs> all right. With that, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye. Ciao.